One of the great joys in parenting, of parenthood, is watching your children grow. You get to see those fun milestones when they're really young, and so when they, you know, sit sit for the first time and start crawling, and and when they take their first steps, and when they start talking and saying mommy and daddy and those kinds of things, when they're potty trained, that's a big one, and uh, one that we were always very thankful for. Uh, then a, late, a little later, they, they, you get to see them learn to read and, and uh, ride a bike and maybe swim or learn an instrument. I mean, those kinds of things, those are very exciting for parents. And then, and then as they get older, you, they, they're becoming more responsible and you get to see demonstrations of that. And they make good decisions and develop good godly character and working hard and serving and giving and and studying and all of these things we we as parents we want to see our children mature we want to see them become more and more well grounded and confident and stable that's that's what every parent wants and because we know the difficulties that they're already facing and that and many of the difficulties that they will face in life and so we want them to be sure-footed when they meet those challenges that are coming and that they're already facing Well, this is essentially Peter's heart as he's writing this letter to these young believers in these churches. He has the same joy and burden, I think, that the elderly apostle John had when he wrote in second John or third John four, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. And so Peter knows these believers are facing and will continue to face situations that will test them to the extreme. And he wants them to be prepared. This is what Second Peter is, is all about. This is a letter from the Apostle Peter who knows his own days are numbered. He's going to likely be killed very soon for the Gospel's sake. And so he's urgently expressing his desire to see his, quote, children in the faith, to see them grow and be strong and stable in the face of the adversity that they're already facing and that will only be increasing for them. And so the key verse of this whole letter is the very last verse of the letter. It's in 2 Peter 3.18. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so this is my prayer for us as we spend time together in this letter over these weeks is that we will, by God's grace, grow in the grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so we, we have to remember that purpose though as we walk through this entire letter and even as we get into each individual section. And so I want us to read Second Peter, I hope you're there now, Second Peter chapter 1, and we'll start in verse 1 and we'll read through verse 11. And we're keeping that purpose in mind. Second Peter 1, verse 1. <coughs> Excuse me. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, 
so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers... Be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an inheritance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, I want to go ahead and acknowledge up front the elephant in the passage. And you probably pick up on this as we read through it. It's in, Verse 10, we could say in some ways that it goes beyond that. Therefore, brothers, look at it again with me. Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities that we see in verses 5 to 7, you will never fall. Some other translations, maybe some that are in your lap right now, they say, be all the more diligent to make certain about His calling and choosing you. Or in the King James, make your calling and election sure. Uh, more contemporary translation, work hard to prove that you really are among those God has called and chosen. Now listen, so make, make your calling and election sure. If there's one thing that, sal- that, that the Scripture uh, uh, attests to and stresses, and particularly in the New Testament, and, and particularly this letter, it's the fact that our salvation is a sure salvation. We've been singing these songs all morning, and so we we agree with that. Because it's all of God's sovereign and sufficient grace in Christ, it could not possibly be more certain or secure or sure. So what in the world does this mean? To, to, To make our calling and election certain or confirm it or to make it sure? Well, this verse, and really this, this paragraph, is one of those battleground uh, passages, it has been, where evangelical Christians kind of turn against one another and they, and they have little theological food fights. And, and so some of you may be privy to this, and if you're not, good for you. Um, but there are lines that are drawn, there are sides that are taken, there are arguments that are, that are made, and, and a lot of theological mashed potatoes get thrown at one another here in, in passages like this. Everybody agrees, uh, well, everybody within evangelical Orthodox Christianity, everybody agrees that there's nothing we can do to make our calling and election sure, more sure from God's point of view. I mean, there's nothing, God doesn't need our help to, to strengthen His choosing or calling of us. Nobody's saying that. So, so, so many reasons that this has to do not with uh, making it sure from God's perspective, but has to do with us being sure for ourselves of our calling and election. Our, it has to do with assurance of salvation. And that's where the theological food fight breaks out. And so one side stresses in a passage like this the necessity of our 
diligent effort in being and doing the things that are listed there in verses 5 to 7 in order to gain assurance, in order to confirm our calling and election. And so they see the point of this passage as, 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 as fostering assurance for doubting Christians if they are obedient and fruitful in these ways. So then you can have assurance. And it's also meant then to inject doubt to those who profess to know Christ but they don't live this way, or at least that's in uh, frequent applications of, of the passage. But then others recoil from that, and, 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 and that interpretation and that application of the text, and, 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 it's, and they see throughout Scripture, and even here, emphasis not on what we do, but on what Christ has done, and, and already done, and that alone is what our assurance for salvation is founded upon. And so the text then, it's not about assurance of re- of salvation, it's assurance of rewards for believers, or something like that. Calling election isn't about salvation; it's about it's about rewards in eternity. And so, so that's some that's kind of some of the background. And I, I think we need to just acknowledge that. And so, you may have these perspectives. So, the question: What about you, preacher? Uh, which which side are you going to take in this theological food fight? Well, I'm going to get clobbered probably with mashed potatoes from both sides here. And it's not because I'm trying to find some middle ground or, or anything like that. That's not it. I honestly, as I've been wrestling with this text and its context, of the wider context of Second Peter, I think both of those views, and I realize there are other views and, and represented even here, both, but both of those kind of sides, they, I think they miss the plain and simple point of the passage in its context. I don't think this passage is about assurance, per se, in that sense. That's not what Peter's dealing with in this letter or in these verses. Let me me just give you my 40,000-foot understanding of this passage, and then we'll descend to a lower altitude and begin to look at it more closely. But just remember the context of 2 Peter. If you weren't here with us last week, let me just catch you up. These believers were in churches that were beginning to be preyed upon by false teachers. And this is, you get into chapter 2, that's all chapter 2 is dealing with, is false teachers. And so these deceivers were trying to undermine the, 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 their trust in the sufficiency of Christ and, and the salvation that he gives. And so Peter, he's nearing the end of his life. He, he writes this urgent appeal to these Christians to strengthen and to prepare them for this insurgency. He's wanting them to be strong and to be able to, to resist and to, to, to endure this. And so he starts by laying this foundation of certainty and the objective truth of the gospel. That's what we looked at last week in verses 1 to 4. But So, so the, that's the most urgent thing they need. But that's not all these young believers needed. They needed stability in doctrine and in life. And so these false teachers, as we'll see in chapter 2, this is a lot of what he's going to deal with in chapter 2. They were, they were given over to all sorts of immorality. Lust and greed and sensuality and pride and selfish gain. This was, this was what characterized these false teachers. And those are real temptations for Christians. Do not pretend otherwise. Don't elevate yourself and say, that's not, I don't face that. No, to deny that is either to be self-deceived or to be willfully hypocritical. We face those temptations. This was a real, this was a real uh, challenge for these believers. And so Peter, 
builds off of that stability we have in the gospel and he shows them how to work out of that stability in the Christian experience in life. And so look at verse 5 again. Peter roots this growth and their stability in the soil of God's grace, sufficient grace, and he says, for this very reason. All that he said in verses 1-4, to we'll come back to that. And, 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 then he, and then he shows that this grace-rooted growth and maturity and stability, he shows what's involved in it. And that's verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, and on and on. And that's not just a, a random list of Christian qualities or graces. Those, those relate directly to the temptations these Christians were facing because of those false teachers. And we're going to see that. So he's preparing them for that. In verses 8, he said that the pursuit of these Christian graces would, would help them be effective and fruitful and have clear vision, spiritual vision, all these things they desperately needed because of what they were facing and would face. And then you get to verse 10. Therefore, and he's summing up his appeal to them. And, and, and I would say verse 10 is really just this intensified repetition of everything he said up to this point in the letter. He's, he's bringing it all back. He's tying it up here. And he says, brothers, confirm. The idea is just make sure, make stable your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall or stumble. I don't, I don't think he's calling them to make sure they're really saved. That's just Ford. I mean, he's calling them brothers. That, that's just importing something into the text. I think the plain meaning of the text in its context is that he's just stating in another way their need to pursue gospel-rooted growth and stability so that they can stand against this onslaught of false teaching and opposition. I think that's the point. Maybe this would be like we you got a, you got we have college students and seniors that graduate and go off to school and we think, oh, we're praying for them. May they be strong in the faith. May, 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 they, may they be stable in their convictions and, under, and then in the grace of God. I mean, this is, this, is how we, this is how we're praying. This is how we would encourage them. I, I think that's essentially what he's doing. And, 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 so he, and then he, at the very end, verse 11, he looks ahead with hope to the promise of Christ's return. And this is what we'll see in chapter 3 really unfold for us. There's this wonderful expectation of a rich welcome into Christ's kingdom on the other side of this diligent pursuit and struggle. So that's what I think in, in broad strokes, that's what's going on here in this passage. And so with that said, and if I've already lost you or you're not clear, that's okay. Work with me here. And I, I pray that the Lord would give us eyes to see what He's intended for us to see here. The big idea in this passage, I think, is last week we talked about the grace that our Growing grace is rooted in remembering Christ. It's what He has done. And so this week we're saying the fruit of growing grace is to be pursued by those who are rooted in Christ. It's about this pursuit. That's a big word here in this passage and a big thought. We're called to this pursuit. First statement we'll make. Five, five statements here to, to walk through this passage. First, grace fruit is pursued dependently. And I know we've already said something about this in this passage, but I just say it again. It doesn't begin with us. It's not 
this fruit production isn't fueled by us. It's not internally produced. It's not a pursuit of self-improvement or self-attained you know, spiritual awesomeness or, or self-made religion or holiness. It's a pursuit of fruit that's produced by the grace that's been brought to us in union with Christ and in which we've been given everything we need for life and godliness. That's the idea. And so he says in verse 5 again, for this very reason. What reason? Again, everything we looked at last week, the roots of grace go grow deep into the soil of Christ and what, and what He's done for us. We've obtained this faith by the righteousness of Christ. Verse 1, we, we've been called into this knowledge of Christ. We've been given everything we need for life and godliness through the power of Christ. We've, we're, we're, we've been, we're, we're partakers of the divine nature because of Christ. And so it's, it's grace, not just that saved us, it's grace that sustains us, it's grace that grows us. It's grace that makes us stable. All of our growth as Christians and this is the whole point of the letter, is in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not in addition to it. It's not apart from it. It is, it is in it. It's not beyond it. And this is what Paul dealt with the Galatians. Galatians 3.3 3, Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? No. It's grace through and through. And so our pursuit of this quote, grace fruit, it's utterly dependent upon the taproot of Christ's sufficient, Christ's salvation and His sufficiency. So he says, for this very reason. So he isn't challenging his readers to work harder in order to be saved or to stay saved. And nobody, I, I don't know anybody that would say that. I'm not trying to create some straw man. It's not, but I don't think it's even in order to be assured of our salvation. I don't think that's the point. We're to strive diligently because we are saved for this very reason. We're freed up then to make every effort. And that's a huge difference. But how easy it is, brothers and sisters, for us to get back onto that performance treadmill. And, and, and we're either really proud of ourselves because of how well we're doing, keeping up, or we're just miserable and despairing because of how much we're failing to keep up. Because we forget the very reason, this very reason, that we're diligently pursuing growth. We're trying to pursue grace or pursue growth independently, showing God what we've produced for Him instead of pursuing growth dependently, grace fruit dependently. Second thing we see here, the grace fruit is pursued diligently. It's, dilig- it's to pursue diligently. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. This is the first command, the first imperative in Second Peter. And, and, and the idea of this word, it, it points to rigorous, purposeful, thoughtful effort to do something. So, so saying it's all in grace, it's all because of Christ, it doesn't lead us to passivity. It's while we contribute nothing to our justification, it's all and only through the sacrificial work of Christ on our behalf. That doesn't mean we're given over to inactivity. Just kind of let go and let God, and just with the passage of time, we'll just grow. Uh, that's not it. No, rather, as we continually draw upon the provision that Christ has made for us, 
we exert ourselves in the pursuit of growth and stability. There's effort in it. The effort in verse uh, 5, is, it's, the, it's the noun form of the word be diligent in verse 10. So it's, this is kind of throughout this passage. Peter calls for this diligent, lifelong effort to make full use of the provision that Christ has made for us. Make every effort to supplement your faith. Note there, Peter doesn't tell us to supply faith. We, no, we, we, we saw this in verse 1. Faith is the given. We, we have obtained faith by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But we're to supplement our faith. To make every effort to do so. Now what does that mean? To supplement our faith. When, when we think about supplementing something, we tend to think be, because there's some kind of lack or deficiency in it. And so if my body is lacking certain nutrients, I, I may take some supplements, dietary supplements, to kind of make up for what's lacking and deficient. Or my salary won't pay the bills, so I need supplemental income. That, that kind of idea. That's not the idea here of, of this word supplement. Faith isn't lacking or deficient in that way. <coughs> it's more like drawing, it's more like drawing out more expressions of what's already there. Um, the, 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 maybe this is helpful. We get our English word uh, chorus or choreograph from this Greek word. This is, uh, you would hear it in the, in the Greek here. And, and so I think that helps us understand the idea. One commentator said, this paragraph is a symphony of grace. To the melody line of faith, he leads believers to add harmony in a blend of seven Christian virtues. So it's not right. It's not like they're, they're, we have, we're adding on to this piece of music. No, the, the piece of music is complete. We're just adding in harmonies and richness and expressiveness to it. And that's, that's the idea of this supplementing our faith with these, with these Christian virtues. And so he's, this grace fruit, though, it's to be pursued diligently, making every <coughs> effort to supplement faith. Now, again, I, coming back to that, what, what we're saying by this, I, I, I know that maybe even as you hear that, and, and certainly at a first reading of this, you, you, you may, it may line up with kind of the way you think about the Christian life, and, and, and you think maybe what you need, it, it, there's this just constant quest for more. I got, I got to, I got to have more. I hear Christians complain about their lack of spiritual vitality, and 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 what they think is they need something else. They need something more. And I think this way at times. And so they they hear about some incredible super spiritual experience that somebody had, and think that's it. That must be it. I need that. Or they they hear about this new best selling book, and you know the key to spiritual happiness and that kind of thing. So that's got to be it. And I mean, millions of people are buying this thing. That must be it. And they, they get it. They read it. They, they you know, think this is the thing. Or, they, or there's this retreat that you know somebody that went on and, and, and that's the more that I need. Or it's this new routine. If I, if, I could just, if I could just get up earlier in the mornings and have, you know, four hours of quiet meditation or something like that before the kids go to school. And I, you know, I, I just got to do that because that's the secret. I need more. I need more. But what Peter is saying in this section, and by, when he's saying supplement our faith, it, it's, we don't need something extra. That's not it. In Christ, we have everything we need 
already. And so last week we talked about this. We don't need more of what we, we, we don't need more than we already have. We need to further discover what we've already been given in Christ. And so I, I, I'm thinking about this. I don't have it with me here. It's sitting down there. We have our high tech, all our high tech gadgets now. You have your smartphone and, and the, mine's not the latest, but if you have the latest and greatest one, you know, most of us use only a small percentage of the potential that's in that device. I know I do. My kids tease me about that. But um, because we don't fully realize how much, how capable it is of doing certain things. And so when we say supplementing our faith, it's not about... It's not about adding additional spiritual gadgets, like I have the smartphone, but I also need this, and I also need that, and I need to, I need to get the tablet, and I need to do this, and I need... That's not what he's talking about. It's about putting into practice more and more of what we've already been given through faith in Christ. That's, what, that's the idea. We're, we're drawing out more and more of what's there, and we're to do that diligently, making every effort to do so. Third, so we're to pursue this grace fruit dependently. We're to do it diligently. And third, we're, this grace fruit is to be pursued expansively. Expansively. And this is right there in verses 5 to 7 as we get through this list. This isn't any kind of exhaustive list. Um, I mean, you could go into other passages in the New Testament and see similar lists like the fruit of the Spirit and and, and so those lists differ from this list. And so it's more representative than comprehensive. But it's not that Peter's just kind of throwing down some random thoughts. Um, yeah, virtue and knowledge and uh, self-control and godliness, that sounds good. And that's not it. No, he's calling us to, to action to make every effort to cultivate this range of Christian virtues and graces in our lives. And as I said earlier, this... The, the, this listing of, of these um, graces, it's going to parallel, in contrast form, uh, the, the character of the false teachers. And so one other thing real quick. Uh, when we read passages like this, it's easy for us to think only individually. And I think this gets us in trouble when we're trying to understand passages like this and kind of difficult interpretive issues. We think my personal spiritual growth plan. And, and that's how we come to passages like this. Okay, this is about me. What do I do? That's not the way Peter's likely thinking. That's not the way his readers likely understood this. We, we are so shaped by our individualistic, hyper-individualistic culture more than we really ever could realize. Um, but growth in grace is for believers in community. He, he, this is not primarily a call to you and me as individuals. I'm not saying we don't grow individually and there aren't individual you know, part aspects to our growth, but, but that's not the, the, the grid through which we should see this passage primarily. We together are to make every effort to supplement faith with virtue and and knowledge and self-control. That's, that's the idea of this passage. We grow as a group. We pursue stability in the face of adversity as a body. The New Testament writers couldn't conceive of another way. And I know for us, it's hard for, for us to conceive of any other way than just simply individually. And so we are coming at it from different angles. 
So I just, that's just a kind of a side note as we get into this. So I, I just don't want you to think Jesus and me here. This is us, church. This is where we need to, where we need to give ourselves. We need to make every effort together to, 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 to do these things, to be these things. So he says, verse 5 again, Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. And so, I don't think that the, the key to understanding this is you know, giving some lengthy word study of each of these. I, they're, they're, they're very self-explanatory. I, I, what I want you to mainly see is that this is just this expansive uh, um, calling to which we're to give ourselves to. It's not, it's not confined to some small little pie slice of our lives. This is, this is comprehensive. It, it touches on everything. And so look, we'll quickly walk through these. And so supplement your faith with virtue or or some of your translations may say moral excellence or goodness. It's just a heart-prompted desire to do what's right and good. Simply. And you contrast that with the false teachers who we're going to see are just given over to self-indulgence. Here, there's, there's virtue. Knowledge. Not just knowledge of facts and information, you know, which king had the shortest reign in Israel, and so we, we want this trivial pursuit Bible edition kind of knowledge. That's not what he's talking about primarily. Nothing wrong with knowing you know, facts like that, but that's not the point. And it's different from the word uh, that we looked at last week of, of this knowledge of Christ in verses 2 and 3. This is a different Greek word. The idea here is more of practical wisdom and discernment. So you think about that again in the context the, that this is essential for our stability in the faith and our ability to recognize and avoid those who teach what is false. We need this knowledge and then he says self-control. In addition, having your passions under control. Again, you contrast that with the false teachers who were enslaved to their sinful, selfish passions. They, in, verse, in verse 2 of chapter 2, it talks about their sensuality. In verse 11, they have this lust of defiling passion. They're bold and willful. In verse 14, they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin, Hearts trained in greed. Verse 18 and 19, there's, there's sin, sensual passions of the flesh, slaves of corruption. So he says, you, brothers and sisters, if, you, if you're going to be able to stand, and you, you, need to, you need to add self-control. Now, I, this is the, as I was thinking about this, this, this is one I think we sometimes get a little frustrated by and we often misunderstand. Um... You know, we, we want to measure it. We want to measure by how many handfuls of potato chips I grab out of the bag. Like, if I only grab three, man, I, I, I am self-controlled. I didn't do six like I did you know, yesterday or two hours ago or something like that. Um, so, so we think like that. Or, or does it mean, ladies, I, I, I won't talk to my husband about what's bothering me because I have to keep it together. I have to control my emotions. And so... I need to exercise self-control, so I don't want to cry. I don't want to... Is that what he... That's... But this is, this is how we get tripped up in thinking of these ways. We self... Uh, <coughs> excuse me. Biblical self-control isn't simply about micromanaging humanness. 
You get that? But this is how we tend to think. It's, it's, just, it, it, it's all about us, and we're at the center, and we're just trying to, to micromanage our little humanness. And we feel like we either are doing really well at or we're doing really poorly. This is where we get tripped up. Colossians, Paul talks about this. He beats back against this idea, this notion of self-made religion and asceticism and, and, and this severity to the body to somehow show that we are, have self-control over ourselves and that we are you know, spiritually elite. He pushes back against this in Colossians. And he, and he says that kind of self-control has no value to fight against sin. It's, it's, it's just an illusion. Self-control biblically, it's not, it doesn't have us at the center. We are controlling our passions, but at the center, it's Christ. It's Him. Again, in the context here, we, we see that so clearly. Alright, and into, into your self-control, steadfastness or perseverance. These, these believers surrounded by these scoffers, surrounded by these false teachers, they needed endurance, they needed stick to, to, to press on, it, steadfastness enables us to persist in growing grace for the long haul, through all the ups and downs, through even when it, even when it costs us, even when it hurts. And so this isn't about, this, and in the context here, it's not just about endurance until this trial's over. If I can just make it through this season, if I can just make it through this hard conversation or this situation I'm in, that's not it. It's endurance in light of what's to come. That's the idea here. Going to talk about that we can be nearsighted, and I think it's it's just it's missing that it's missing the long the long view of life. It's being it's being willing to suffer in the short term, knowing we will experience glory for eternity. And to our perseverance, godliness, just a general idea of of we would say piety or something like that, Re- practical reverence, which which grows out of a life that. That's lived with a deep awareness of always being in the presence of God, living coram deo. It's being deeply conscious of our relationship with God, and, and so that it just shapes and colors everything in our lives. That's the idea of godliness, and then to that brotherly affection. So those first five virtues are are, are more internal character traits. The, the, these last two are more horizontal, how we relate to one another, how we think about and relate to one another. So, so brotherly affection. This is just fervent, practical care for others because we're part of the same spiritual family. We share this in common, and so we, we care for one another. It's a, it's a generous spirit towards other believers. We're generous in giving, generous in helping, generous in judgment. And so we, we, we're slow to think the worst of our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's, that's, this is in, 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 wrapped up in this brotherly affection. And, that, and Peter said in his first letter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, this, this is nothing that can be self-generated. It's like we just draw. That's, none of these can be. This has all got to come uh, from the generation of the Holy Spirit. And in 1 Peter 1, 22, Peter says it actually it comes with the salvation package. He says that we've been saved for a sincere brotherly love. And then he charges them, so then love one another earnestly from the heart. And then the brotherly affection, he says, finally, love. Begins with faith, ends with love. This is that word we know best of love, agape. The deliberate desire for the highest good of the one loved. 
That's the idea here. It's not love that's prompted by what the other person does or who he is or what he's like. It's prompted by who God is and what he's done for us. So this is this is this list. Notice it is not a checklist of imperatives. It's not do this, do this, do this. He's not writing a how-to manual. These are not do anything. These are these are virtues. We're to we're to make every effort to supplement our faith with these things. But he's what he's calling us to do is to make full provision of all that we've been given in Christ. Tap into that potential. Make every effort to do it. Draw it out. Don't just use your smartphone to make phone calls or calculate tips. That's not the point. There, there's so much more there. And he's saying supplement your faith with virtue and knowledge and self-control and godliness and endurance and brotherly affection and, and love. And just bring in these beautiful harmonies and make every effort to bring in these harmonies and add it to the melody line of faith. So grace fruit, it's, it's to be pursued dependently, it's to be pursued diligently, expansively, and fourth, we're going to see now, grace fruit is pursued purposefully. Look at verse 8. <coughs> For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. And so, saying we must pursue this gospel-rooted growth in grace so that we can become effective, fruitful, and so that we can see clearly. That's stating it positively here. Peter states these these these. He's negatively. He's, this is the blessing of the things we avoid by making every effort to practice and, and do these things and have these qualities in us and increasing. And so, I, if you play golf, if any of you play golf, or if any of you ever played golf, um, you understand that your score, and I would say your enjoyment of that round of golf, is very dependent upon what you avoid. <laughs> It's not always just like, i got to get it perfect. No, it's just avoiding the hazards. And so most of the game is avoiding. It's avoiding water. It's avoiding woods. It's avoiding the rough. It's avoiding sand. It's avoiding you know, other players. And, I mean, all kinds of things. You're, you're basically, that's my game. I realize some people are, people that are really, but for me it's just a matter of avoiding things. And, and, and the more I can avoid, the better I do. <laughs> And, and I think this is, this is sort of what he's saying here. He's not thinking golf. Um, but, but, but in, in, in golf, you, you can finish the hole. You can, you can post a score by not avoiding those things, but it will be better if you do avoid them. And, and so here he's saying, he's saying, brothers and sisters, as you, as you make every effort to do these things, do it so that you can avoid these kind of sand traps in your life. Avoid these hazards, and there are plenty of them. Pursue this to be fruitful, or to keep from being ineffective and unfruitful. I think those are basically synonymous. Maybe a slight little nuance, but it just means to, to don't you don't want to live a life of little or no consequence, idle and and thoughtless, spiritually aimless, and therefore fruitless. 
That's not it. So God's will for us is that we abound in every good work. That we're filled with the Holy Spirit and walk in the Spirit. That we grow and flourish. (coughs) What does He say? In the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's not... He's saying you don't want to be unfruitful in that knowledge. You want to flourish in it. And that's what these early believers needed as these false teachers were sneaking into these churches and, 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 and spreading their lies. They, they, they needed to be strong. They needed to be fruitful. They needed to be effective. They needed these things. That's what we need in our own day. And then secondly, he says, pursue this to keep clear vision or to avoid nearsightedness and blindness. That's a, this is a curious statement. I, I think this is an interesting wording. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind. So the, the, this isn't a person who necessarily is out there doing really, really bad things. That's not the, the point of the, the blind person, nearsighted. No, it's just if you lack these things, this is a picture of a person who's spiritually confused and, and lost. They, they can't see, they can't. Can make the, the, we get our word my, uh, myopia from, from this Greek word here. And so we have this spiritual myopia. And so I think, I think one thing this means in the context is instead of fixing our hope on the certainties of, uh, of the spiritual and eternal certainties that God has promised to us, all we can think about is the here and now. We're nearsighted. We're short-sighted. This is what the false teachers were. They, they, they said they, they put no confidence that Christ would return. They were just thinking here and now, and this is why they gave themselves to indulging in the flesh. And, and he's warning these believers, you've you, you got to avoid being nearsighted. You've got to be able to see clearly, see what matters, see, see things from God's perspective on this eternal scale, see what's coming and live in light of that. And so our pursuit of growing grace, it, it keeps us, as we make every effort, it keeps us from this kind of impaired vision. So, so he's saying, we've got to avoid these things. If, listen, if you are, or if you know, a believer who seems unfruitful, ineffective, uh, visually impaired in this way, maybe disengaged, bored, apathetic, how do you diagnose that problem? What's the issue? What do we tend to do? We, we, want to address, we want to address that by coming up with all of these things you need to be doing. And so we rush in. You've got to do this. You've got to stop that. You've got to get busy over here. You've got to read this. You've got to go to bed earlier. You've got to eat healthier. You've got, you got to read the Bible more. You've got to stop that habit. You've got to drop that hobby. This is what we tend to think. And those may be good and fine things, and some of those things need to happen. I'm not saying we don't ever, you know, there are habits we need to kill because they're, they're counter to uh, a, a growing life in Christ. That, that's not my point. But may I suggest that according to Peter, Second Peter here, the proper diagnosis of spiritual apathy is an identity issue. This is what Peter's saying here. What's the reason some don't, some Christians don't pursue this kind of growth that leads to fruitfulness and clear vision? Why would we not do that? Why wouldn't we do that? Because he says we're forgetful. We're forgetful. Willingly forget, willfully forgetful. We've forgotten what we've been cleansed from. Verse 9. We forget what we once were apart from Christ. We forget 
what we've now become in Christ. We don't rejoice in our redemption. We, we aren't filled with gratitude for the union that we have with Christ. We, we, we don't make much of, what, of Christ and what He's done for us. We, we, we forget. So, we don't wake up from spiritual apathy simply by working harder. We wake up by re-engaging with the good news of Jesus Christ. This is what Paul said to the Ephesians in Ephesians 5.14. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. He's talking to believers who are, who are in this kind of spiritual funk and blindness and ineffectiveness and drunkenness. And he's saying, wake up, and Christ will shine on you. And, 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 and so this is why so much of our lives as Christians is, is about remembering Christ and what He's accomplished. This is why we gather on the Lord's Day. This is why we remember the Lord's Table. This is why we're constantly needing to preach the Gospel to ourselves. It, it, it's because this is, this is what fuels a life of, of spiritual vitality where we can make every effort to be diligent and to guard against unfruitfulness and ineffectiveness and blindness. Last thing. Grace fruit is pursued expectantly. Expectantly. Verse 10 again. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Now, Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't, he doesn't say, therefore church, memorize this list. Drill yourselves every day. Grade yourself from F to A, how you're doing every day. And then while you're at it, grade everybody around you and see whether you're doing this well or not. That's not it. I mean, by speaking of calling and election, he's emphasizing again that it's Christ's work which makes these things possible. But what... Here, when I say we're to pursue it expectantly, this is what I mean. We, what can we expect as we make every effort, diligent effort, rigorous effort, to, to, to pursue these things, pursue growth in Christ, dependent upon Him? What do we do? We can expect stability. Stability now. He, again, the idea of confirm is to make stable, to make it sure. As we practice these things, we set our lives on a course where we won't be shaken or moved away from the faith. Not by false teachers, not by suffering, not by anything. It keeps us solid and stable so we won't be moved, especially by those who come to us with another gospel. I mean, just thinking, uh, maybe, I'm, this is not the best illustration, but I hope it communicates some of what I'm trying to say. You think of the context of marriage. On, on your wedding day, you, you exchange vows and you, you are getting across that threshold. We are now married. And so, do you then say, alright, that's where the effort ends. No, that's where it begins. It, it's not, we're married now, so I guess there's really not much else to do, right? We just wear the ring. and No, you, you cultivate that relationship. I hope you do. You, you do everything you can to make that marriage sure and stable and you're, you're constantly reminding yourselves of those vows. <coughs> Why? Because there are attacks on your marriage all the time. It's being attacked constantly. So, again, that's not a perfect illustration, but I, I just want you to see the importance of pursuing growth, maturity, stability rooted in the Gospel because you are under attack. So, 
And then he says also, we, we can also expect not to fall or stumble or be tripped up. That's the idea of this word. And, and again, I think this is just an intensified repetition of, of, of what he said earlier. It's a, a being ineffective, unfruitful, blind. And so, with these false teachers on the prowl, we need to keep our feet under us. So, so now, now, there's this expectation that we are kept from stumbling. We can know stability, but there's even more later. So we have, we have stability now, and we have splendor later. This is how we, how we uh, pursue this grace fruit diligent, or, or expectantly. We, there is a splendor. Verse 11, For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. As we grow in grace, rooted in Christ and His sufficiency, diligently pursuing it, uh, we have this hope and expectation of a wonderful, rich entrance into the eternal kingdom of Christ. And that's what he's talking about. It's not just we, we, get, we, get, we get to go in. No, he's just saying we have this prospect of this, that it will be richly provided to you. It's a rich entrance. There's wonderful rewards. There's wonderful uh, blessings and riches to come as we, as we enter in. The ultimate reward of a growing, Christ-dependent, Christ-honoring life is the personal welcome by the Savior into His kingdom. And, and, and again, think of the context. These believers and the false teachers coming in. Nero's persecution intensifying. And, and all that's happening here. And all the pressure on these. That, and he's saying, okay guys... You've got to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. You need, to, you, 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 need to, you need to be certain of what Christ has done in His sufficiency and then supplement, be diligent, make every effort to, to, to supplement your faith, growing and maturing and being stable, confirming your call and election so that you never stumble. But brothers and sisters, there is this prospect. There is this hope. You're going to be richly welcomed into the kingdom by Christ. What a wonderful, what a wonderful promise. Well, listen, we're talking about growing grace through this letter of Second Peter, and this is what we're again seeing today. You can't really know about growing grace until you've come to know grace itself, saving grace. You can't expect to grow in Christ until you have life in Christ. Peter is writing to those who've come to faith in Christ as their Savior. My question for you is, have you done that? And, I, and, there, and there may be some here today who have, who have not. Whether you've grown up in here and you've been part of this church for years, and maybe this is the first time you've ever walked through the door of any church. The good news is not that Jesus will meet you part way. Not halfway, not 99.99999% of the way. That's not it. He's done, it's not that He's done most of the work to save you from your sins, and then you, you just have to bring a little bit of effort, a little morality, a little merit. No, not it. Christ has brought everything to the table. He has done it all. The only thing that you and I contribute to, our, to, to salvation is our need for it because of our sin. Jesus has done it all. He was sent into this world out of love for sinners he lived a perfect life, something you and I can never do. He died in our place, taking the punishment for our sins as our substitute. He rose again on the third day and invites you to trust in Him alone to be the Savior. 
your Savior from your sins. And so if you've not trusted in Christ, if you don't know that grace, if, you're, if, you're, if, you're, if the way you've been thinking about life, the way you've been thinking about religion, the way you've been thinking about church, is, is, and, and even about eternity, is just thinking, I just got to be a better person, I got to be good enough, I got to, uh, you know, and, and so that's the, you're, you've got this scale in your mind that you're trying to keep balanced, and that's not it. You say, I have nothing. There's nothing that I can contribute. And so it's all Christ. That's what it means to, to become a Christian. That's what it means to put your trust in Jesus, saying, Jesus, I trust you. And so if you've not done that, you, you, you can't know what it means then to grow in this grace. And so I, I encourage you to do that today. I plead with you to do that today. If you want to know more, come talk with me. Come talk, talk to someone sitting around you. But Christian, church, listen, are, are, we, are we growing? Are we making every effort rooted in, in this, these gospel certainties? Are we making every effort? These are dangerous times for believers and for churches. I mean, it's not unique in that way, but it's, we, we cannot afford to be ineffective or fruitless or blind or stumbling along. We must diligently pursue grace-rooted growth and stability in Christ together. And as long as we practice these things, we, we won't stumble. And, and, in, and in this way, our entrance into the eternal kingdom will be richly provided for us. And so we can say, to God be the glory. Great things He has done. I want to end just by simply reading the next verses. And I considered about folding these in with our section, but we're going to take them next week. He goes on to say, Therefore... I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to, to, to see the fulfillment of Peter's words right here in our own context, that his readers would, would be able at any time to recall these things, Father. That we, we would be so steeped in these realities of um, the sufficiency of your grace in Christ and then what that means for us and in, in diligently pursuing uh, the, the full implications of that in our lives. And so I pray that not just true for us one by one across this room, but that would be true for us as a church, God. Give us the, uh, the, the grace to, to grow in this way, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.